It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is Frank Freach, Executive Vice President of Lahir and CEO of Lahir North America. Frank has served as the SAIA in numerous capacities since 2014, including time spent on the executive board. Frank holds a degree in mechanical engineering from the F.H. Karlsruhe University of Applied Sciences and advanced degrees from F.H. Forsheim University and an MBA from Steins Base University in Berlin. In his free time, he enjoys doing sports and being active. Frank Fritz, welcome into the corner office. Well, Rance, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you here. And gosh, we're about uh, 12 weeks into the COVID crisis. And you and I spoke a few days ago, though, but uh, Lahir is uh, going strong. You're an essential industry, and it sounds like things are, are pretty much the usual. Uh, how are things down in your part of the world uh, today, given you know all that's happening uh, in COVID across the country and, of course, in your uh, home location of Houston? Well, uh, Texas is probably one of the states that opened up fairly early. Right. We have a decent uh, low rate of um, infections and uh, I think a manageable rate of death, which is kind of a question. Is it ever manageable yeah, to have right. a rate of death? <laughs> That's right. That's then right. For my part, I had the virus beginning of March. I got infected in the hotspot ski village in Austria. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. So personally, I had less symptoms than the flu. But the big thing about it for me is that I don't have to worry about it that much. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. And your family's healthy through all this as well? The family is healthy. They stay clear. My dad and my mom are fairly old, so they are staying locked up in the home back in Germany. Well, let's start with that. Uh, I know that you're an immigrant and have come to this country about 15 years ago or so and have done exceptionally well. But I I'd love to hear about your early years, where you grew up in Germany and what your early family life was like. Well, I grew up in a small town in the Rhine Valley, aside the Black Forest Mountains. Mm, beautiful there. That's close to the French border and uh, close to the Swiss border. Yeah, it's beautiful for most part, but it rains a lot. Not as much <laughs> as Seattle and not as many water buckets that it does in Houston, but it, it spreads out quite some time and it's gray and rainy. Siblings, brothers and sisters, uh, what, tell us a little bit about your family. My parents grew up in a small village not far from there, or my dad grew up there. And uh, he was a farmer and made mm -hmm. his way to the next little town where my mom is from. 
And uh, I'm glad I'm not an inbred, so. <laughs> That's where they met. Huh? <laughs> and uh, my dad worked himself into property management and actually into development of uh, some uh, some uh, real estate. And my mom ran a um, insurance business and uh, managed that till they retired. Okay. Cool. I have a younger brother. Right. Who hated me and who hated who I hated until I uh, came back from the U.S. So I was 16. I did a stint in West Texas uh, in a high school year. That was very, very great for me. There was a yeah. lot to learn out there and a lot of different things to see, which probably prepped me a little bit for what I'm doing now. Back, the understanding yeah. of the different cultures and. Uh, Maybe not completely adhering to either or, but being able not to upset both sides too much. Right. right. Were you and your brother very competitive? No, we just hated our guts until uh, <laughs> I got back. And then from then on, we, uh, we were one soul and everybody hated us because we, uh, we were inseparable and we yeah. thought alike. Close, close, age, uh, close age between you two? Two years younger. Oh, just two years, yeah. He was uh, two years younger than I was. Yeah, yeah, terrific. What about um, some of your early memories of mom and dad? Sounds like dad was a hard worker. He transitioned his career, and mom, of course, also having a business. What, what are some of the things that you remember that inspired you uh, about them when you were earlier on? My dad um, was probably the main influence on my life, mm. and uh, he, uh, often in the opposite way than he intended to, but... Uh, he, as he grew up in a small village, did not have a dad. He was uh, an autodidact, and mm. he learned and studied the whole time, worked himself through several jobs at the railway, at the bank, and then finally into that property management office that he bought bankrupt and wow. got up to a decent amount of wealth and security for all of us and then enabled me to uh, study and go to school as well as my brother. Yeah. Probably yeah. not rich, but we always had everything we, we needed. Nice, nice. So self-taught. He sounds like a self-taught man. Absolutely, self-taught. And he still, to this day, with 80, he learns French and English. Wow. And studies it, which he never had in school. I said his his uh, pronunciation is probably as uh, horrible as a German can pronounce English, <laughs> but he gets what he wants uh, he wherever he done. goes. Good for him. What about other influencers? Were there aunts or uncles or teachers or coaches that uh, had an influence on you early on? Frank? Not that much. Probably yeah. a rowing coach to lay oh. on who got me primed for sports. Yeah, and he was he was an he was an odd man, but very knowledgeable man, and mm. he took care of of the team. Did you row competitively in school, or was that a club team? In in school, you don't have much sports in yeah. Germany. You are yeah. exposed to some sports, but uh, you do your sports at uh, at the clubs. Right in uh, Germany, mainly at soccer. Everybody played soccer. I played yeah. soccer as well. Right. right, and then I got into rowing, and uh, it was basically semi-professional rowing. Yeah. Until the time I found out that I'm not good enough for the Olympic boats, and then I went into everything that made fun. Right, right. Well, rowing's a great sport. My youngest daughter's a rower, started in high school, and now she's well, collegiate nice. in the U.S., and uh, wonderful uh, workout. Uh, I have an erg outside my door here that she uses more often when she visits, but uh, it is one of the best exercises. So you rowed virtually through high school then, or, or your college? What, what, what would have been the years? Almost uh, to the beginning of 
No, the, the military cut it basically off. Right. I made that decision there that uh, okay, I won't I won't be won't be able to go any further. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so you spend eight times a week, four hours wow. uh, in and around rowing boats and exercising. And it's uh, hard work. Um, so I cut it back to to what I call slow sport, and uh, yeah, I did yeah. only two hours a day then. Right. <laughs> but everything I enjoyed from martial arts to to running to uh, uh, skiing, snowboarding, mountain biking, surfing, some of it I became really good at, but uh, some of them I am horrible to this day, but I enjoy doing it. <laughs> what were some of the principles in rowing that you remember? You know, uh, uh, did you do four man, eight man, single shell? What, what, what was your... Uh, your, but, your... Uh, my race boats were usually double two. That Double means uh, have uh, two people in the boat right. facing backwards and rowing with two skulls each yeah. without yeah. any steer. And then right. the single boat. And um, I did a few stints in a four, in a double four, but that was where it ended. Yeah, you preferred the, the, the single skull or, uh, or the doubles. I happen to be very light and uh -huh. very tall. So yeah. we had uh, my partners, same thing. So we had a very good stint as having a lot of waterway, how yeah. it's called. And, uh, and very fast. And very fast. <laughs> yeah. What about school? Were you a good student in secondary high school going into college? Oh. <laughs> he says with certainty. <laughs> I had never been a good student. <laughs> Except in history, arts, and sports, I was the things always you good enjoyed. I suppose, yes, yeah. Um, but I was always a good enough student. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I I understood when it was time to really put everything into it to make it or make it good enough. Yeah, right. And I think until my second uh, degree, I I did mechanical engineering the first, and then I did a post grad. Mm. because the times weren't that great in industrial engineering. And that's when I started leaning into it and study and got serious yeah. about it. Well, you mentioned that the trip to uh, West Texas when you were 16. Tell us a little bit about that. Was that a like a study abroad program, high school or a work abroad? What, what was that? Uh, what brought you um, to West Texas at that age? That was a high school exchange year. Mm -hmm. So you are setting yourself up and uh, families around the U.S. can pick if they want to uh, have an exchange student for a year. It's like AFS, right? I recall I that was one of the I do not know that word. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They, uh, they, a family in West Texas picked me. Wow. And it is, of course, slightly different than coming from Germany. So you have to cross <laughs> a river twice, not over the bridge, but drive through the water. Yeah. And you live out on a ranch where um, three Three ranches share a telephone line. Man. And uh, the first thing they, they asked was, can you shoot? I said, yes. Uh, here's your 20 gauge. Shoot <laughs> it and throw it over the wall. <laughs> Knock out your boots. There might be a spider or a scorpion. Watch when you get into bed. There might be a snake. Wow. That is slightly different. Slightly than, uh, different than your small village in the Black Forest. <laughs> Germany, yes. Oh, my gosh. How was your English before you came? I learned school English, and of yeah. course, the Texan draw was a little issue at the beginning. <laughs> I, I would say that took about four weeks to acclimate to it, imagine. and then it yeah. went fairly well. Of course, you have basic 
English and a crowbar or post hole digger is not the first thing you learn in Germany <laughs> when you learn German. <laughs> All kinds of new vocabulary. And was it for a full year, Frank? That was a full year. Fantastic. Wow. That's great. Are you still in touch with the family that you stayed with? I'm loosely in touch with yeah, the family. Yeah. You probably, when you came back to Texas, had a chance to do that. So you came back, and then and then did you go right into college at that time? What, what was kind of your next step after you returned? No, from... it was after the 10th grade. In okay. Germany, we had 13th grade at that. If you right. go for the, for the larger school, you had yeah. 10th grade. Yeah. If you go for the middle section of the education, or you have 8th uh, grades if you go for the uh, basic uh, education level. Well, they kind of test you, right? Don't you? So don't they, they stream you? Yes. you? Yeah, at an yes. early age. So I thought I'm going to do my 11th grade, the junior year here, and right. then do 12 and 13 in Germany. But when I was here, I noticed that the education is quite a bit different. Yes. The focus on education is quite a bit different. And I know I would drown when I go back into uh, and hit right off with the 12th and the 13th grade. So I did mm. 11th grade, 12th and 13 in, in a technical uh, high school that is right. basically like a like a college prep yeah. already. You're yeah. ready to go to university after. Right, right. And after univer uh, after that came military. So I went to a paratroopers and mm. uh, did my time in the military, and then went to mechanical engineering. Now was was the military uh, required and still required in Germany at the time? It was still required yeah. at the time. You could go to court and tell them that you can't, can't hold a weapon uh, out of personal and mm. uh, ethical reasons. So it's kind of tough to say that when you've been in Texas and <laughs> shot about for, for uh, a year at 16. Lived in a house with 45 guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been hard to stand behind. So uh, four years, three years? How, how long is your military service? It was service? two years. Oh, just two it years. it got yeah. shortened in the time I was there due to... Um, funding and reorganization so i got lucky i i got a 15 month right out of that and then after you finished with that that's when you went on to get your advanced degree now did you have a choice with that in terms of going into engineering was that something that you um kind of decided that's what you wanted to go and do at that age you said my father was an influencer or i said my mm -hmm. father was an influencer yes. in opposite direction i always love to tinker around and fix things Mm. And uh, my father had no idea about mechanical engineering. So huh. that was the choice. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So went on to that, and then you later got an MBA. Now, was that back-to-back? -back? How did you kind of progress in your studies after your, um, your degrees there? At this time, German studying was a little bit different right. set up than it, was, uh, than it is now. There was no bachelor degree and then a master's. It was at that time a full-time degree. So you were in there for four and a half, five years for right. mechanical engineering. It was a full engineering dipple-inch degree. Right. And afterwards, as times weren't that good, I chose to do a uh, industrial engineering in, uh, additional degree, which was not much more than the mechanical, but gave me the background of accounting mm. and uh, general management. Then I went to work for automotive supplier. Okay. And during that time, I did a uh, part-time MBA, which was rough. It took two years, and you had several at uh, different location mm. school times. Where you, I mean, I took all my vacation up for 
a year before doing these two years and then a year after. Right. And uh, did that on the side, basically, over yeah. two and a half years. And was the motivation behind it the MBA because you wanted to get into management? Did you feel that you needed to know more about business? Tell us a little bit about, you know, um, you know a f- fairly long extended education period, right? I mean, after the military, it looks like you were at least about four or five years more in college. Is that about right? I got the numbers it right. It was almost six almost years. Six I years, think. yeah. And it was uh, the first two two degrees. I always right. worked after after. I think after about three years, I always worked on the side. Yeah, but, well, you're uh, always going to school. It was yeah. um, a fairly long degree, and then I did something else which I enjoyed a lot, but wasn't helpful for studying that much during this time. I worked at the nightclub three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> nice. A nightclub is uh, you're partying while you're serving at the bar or right. working the door. Right. And I enjoyed that and helped me support myself, helped yeah. me to be able to uh, to have a car and so on. Right. And then I did uh, stints at a AC company, and that basically probably took a year longer because of that. But it was a year that I don't consider lost. It, yeah, was, it yeah. was interesting to me. So it was after you finished your MBA that I believe you joined your current employer, Leher, in, um, in, in Germany. Was that correct? Yes. It and did kind never of, join Leher in Germany. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, evicted from Germany in 2003. Evicted? With the <laughs> automotive crowd <laughs> and was sent to Alabama, which I enjoyed a lot. Okay. We had a plant there for the automotive company, and uh, I was uh, the technical sales and, well, technical go-to since I had planned that uh, uh that building and that whole setup with a, with a crew and a health plant and designing it. Now, was that the first time you started managing people, Frank? That was the first time that I started managing people. Yeah. I was, my automotive stop, uh, job started with um, being the assistant to the owner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have to execute without having any real authority. You've got to get the That's people right. to work f- with you on certain things. So yeah. that was probably the first time managing people without having an official management uh, role. Right, right. And and you were probably significantly younger than them, I would think, for the most part. To and, a lot uh, of them, yes. And all of them were Americans as well. At the beginning, it was all Germans. It and was all Germans. in 2003, the majority was Americans. Got it, got it. So How was, was that transition? Customer. That was a little bit easier for me, yeah. actually. I, yeah. I did not have that much issue with the Americans in America, or rather with the Germans in America. Interesting. Because yeah. the Germans behaved very German, <laughs> and they spoke very German. You right. must do this, right. because this is how we said. And right. um, it is a commanding voice that Command control, in German yeah. is not as harsh as it sounds in English. Right, right. It's just one of the nuances. So, so that was in Alabama, and then did you move to Texas from there? Tell us a little bit about your career path with, with uh, once you came back to the states. The owner of that automotive company, who was a very patriotic but very knowledgeable and uh, well networked uh, person, our biggest customer was uh, Daimler, and mm-hmm. I was able here to open up uh, some of the big three as customers and some of the Japanese. 
which I enjoyed a lot working with all these people because it's widely different than anything I experienced before. But the owner died really on short terms Mm. on on cancer. And it started falling apart. Now, Mm. as a technical sales guy, you have a certain time where your customers know that it's not you that is not performing, but it's uh, your company that's not performing for certain reasons. But after about six months to a year, it falls back on you, even so they know it's actually not you. Mm. So either you find a new job or you drown with what happens in that company. And a friend of mine who did that MBA with me, his wife worked for Layer and uh, they were looking for somebody. Layer had similar issues like a lot of uh, German uh, companies do have. They um, rely first on very American management, which the Germans can deal with. Then they rely on German management, which the Americans can deal with. And I don't say either one is better. I just, it's just a cultural way that doesn't work together well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, we had a very knowledgeable man, Mr. Poet, who consolidated everything. And they were looking for somebody to rebuild it. So Mm -hmm. I came in at, uh, at the bottom of that without having to do the consolidation work and um, started as a technical sales. And then you moved moved from Birmingham to Houston at the time? Yes, sir. I moved from Birmingham to to Houston because the headquarter was here. There was only two branches. There were only two branches left of layer at that time. Right. And then I started my stint here. And after a year and a half, I took over from Mr. Poet. And we got where we got yeah. to now. Fantastic. And you were telling me the other day um, about 50 employees. Is that right in total? Right now we're about 51 employees. Yes. And tell in us a little US bit about what, Canada. Yeah. Tell us a little bit what Layer does. Layer does scaffolding, the mm-hmm. inventor of the currently mainly used industrial scaffold. It's the layer system or all round system. Another word for it is pin and ring. Mm-hmm. And um, it is used in in all kinds of application, in the refineries, in the pulp and paper mills, in the shipyards, at the Navy, at uh, power plants to gain access, temporary access to workspaces or to work. We do sell, rent, and manufacture that material. Here in the U.S., we sell, rent, and engineer, and uh, support our clients with the technical details of it. Right. Right. And um, uh, is there a, a proprietary system that's been developed? I know you were telling me the little story about um, it, it, they got started in the ladder business, correct? Or what, what was the origins? Originally? The history was that old Mr. Leo moved yeah. from Stuttgart, which was totally bombed out right, in, right. in the Second World War, yeah. to his hometown little village in a garage and built ladders out of wood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And after a while, they left several rungs out so they could walk through that ladder and put planks over it. So they basically had a scaffold. Yeah. And after a while, they put uh, the wood away and decided to make that out of steel. And that is what we call today the speedy scaff- scaffold mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. in the early 60s. Right. And in the early 70s, they came up with a reset system and a wedge and a wedge head that connects in a very specific way and very specific links that is the all-round system that is 
highly flexible, but a modular system that can be used in all kinds of different environments, from construction of commercial buildings, residential to uh, to what I mentioned before, and all kinds of industries. And uh, still family-owned, the company? or The company been... is still family-owned. Yeah. They uh, are the board of the company, mm-hmm. and two of the two family trees, each one has one member in a management role and the rest is managed by professional management which is a very great setup and this is the second generation or or third generation third generation already going into the fourth generation you were the first german uh, uh, president there is that correct that is correct i was yeah. the first german president here before yeah. that they had a uh, support guy out of germany that was here as an assistant for a while mm. but that was mainly it and it, you, you didn't really have your sights set on it uh, when you joined, or you know, tell us a little bit about kind of your, how your career evolved to, to running the show. Well, I never thought I'd get where I am right now. Mm-hmm. And when I started, it was more technical uh, sales, with the hint that that could be the VP position later on. Right. And uh, after I signed, Mr. Leo told me, "So well, it didn't work before, so we're going to try it now another two years, and if we can't <laughs> make it, we close it down." <laughs> So, I love it. We could have told me that about two hours ago. It would have changed a few things. <laughs> well, sometimes those little motivations work out, right? Uh, makes you work all the harder. How would you say your leadership's evolved over the time when you started in technical sales to you know running the show today? I think it started in the automotive before. And when you're young, everything needs to happen right away. Hmm. Uh, the evolvement comes when you are learning how to do use time better to your advantage right it doesn't need to happen now it needs to happen within reasonable time mm. and uh, that takes a lot of stress out of a lot of decisions it's not procrastinating but making the right decision at the right time mm. and uh, being able to to wait on certain things patiently before you do it instead of doing it right now. That's so true. They'll, you know, that's like um, responding to an email uh, with anger uh, <laughs> or in a situation where, you know, um, you're not very pleased with the response, but saving it in draft overnight, right? And looking at it again the next day. Have you found yourself doing so in a, in a broader management sense? In other words, encountering certain situations that your gut says, I need to fix this right away, but then your conscious says, let's give it a day or two. With uh, what you said with the emails, I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good practice, uh, isn't it? (laughs) I just went through a stint uh, uh, in uh, the last week where I was so upset. And I said, I cannot call my two guys today (laughs) and tomorrow. I'm going to call them on Friday. Right, good. (laughs) Because it it is different if you then have your your senses and you slept over it and you're able to breathe. You stepped off the line, basically. Yeah. And uh, I do that in, in a lot of other things and yeah. about hiring people. Yeah, you know, who do we going to hire? And I said, let's hire them both. But then I have two guys to work with. I said, let's see. I don't think you will have two guys to work with. Yeah. So we right. gave both an offer, and sure enough, one of them declined. Yeah, there you go. Uh, that gives you that ease that That's right. I wouldn't have had 15 years ago yeah. or 20 yeah. years ago. Give us another example of that. I love that, Frank, where you've put that into place. 
well, reaction to to really bad things that happen mm. that uh, doesn't allow you to do it as long, but an immediate reaction. Well, if you go to a meditation and a book like that, you say, okay, you go back and you do breathing exercises. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It allows you to calm your mind and think about it more easy. You would you would do that, or like in the military, it would be said, you step off the line and you watch yourself and you you work through the options instead of using your initial excitement if it's negative or positive about something to solve that problem mm. that excitement most likely if, if bad stuff happens will get you in trouble right because it's a fear driven and not a thought through yeah. solution yeah great example thank you um company culture is a real important thing and and you know you're the head of the outpost of a, of a company that's been what is it? How long have they been in Texas? Is lay here, obviously. You've been there 15 years, but uh, the company's been there, what, 2030? When, when was it founded here? Texas, uh, the U.S. was in 76. Oh, I'm my right. gosh. Wow. So 40-odd years. And it was in Baton Rouge. Yeah. And uh, we don't have a Baton Rouge office anymore, but we got a, a Mobile, Alabama office. Mm. And now we got an office in, in a yard in Ocala, Florida, in Maryland in Houston and Toronto and in uh, Edmonton. Wow. Great, great expansion. How do you communicate culture? You know, wh how do you go about ensuring that that is something that everybody understands and, you know, kind of have that consistency of values across the organization, particularly with so many different branches? It comes a bit with the people you pick when you mm. hire. Yeah. I do intend to not want to be micromanaged and so i don't want to micromanage right i want to choose people that make decisions that fall about in the same line like i would have made the decision mm. i want to have somebody knowledgeable but then stand up enough to tell me i don't want to do that for what reason do you not want to do that mm. and uh quite sometimes it's the better way if we do it their way yeah. Sometimes it's not, but then we, we solve that while we talk about it. Right. But the, the stuff at the branches and these locations needs to be done. <laughs> and, uh, well, of course, we're not a social club, but I don't want to have some kind of a threatening or um, high-driven environment. Everybody needs to get his stuff done. Right. And it should be easy to live and communicate with everybody. So, so you talked about it. It's all about the people you hire. What, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in and bring into the organization? What, what's important? If you look at a resume, that's basically a uh, marketing brochure of a person. <laughs> so what does it say? What does it say about you? It's not, everything in there could be true or could be nicely put up in a way without lying and uh, then some people blunt out lie in there as well. So we have people applying and uh, said they're good in Excel and Microsoft Outlook, and they weren't able to open Outlook at all. <laughs> that's, that's, it's a tough thing, or can't do an Excel spreadsheet or hard code numbers into an Excel spreadsheet. So what do you do? You look for a personality, a will, and a drive, mm. and then see if you can find out ability are they able to do what what you need them to do what kind of questions do you ask to get at them 
It depends how much time I have. <laughs> well, let's just say if you had five minutes, because you don't interview everyone, and for obvious reasons you can't, particularly given the fact that you know you've got a diverse geographic organization. But you know, let's say one of your branch managers, one of your DC guys, says, "Well, you know, this is a really important hire, Frank. I, you know, spend ten minutes with him on the phone." What would you ask him or her? I I, I would not like to do it on the phone, yeah. but uh, on on site, I do like to ask just normal questions for about a minute. Mm. And then I would ask him, why did you wear that shirt or these shoes or that mm. skirt to an interview? Hmm. And leave that standing in the room as it is and see how that person reacts to this fairly uncomfortable question in that yeah. situation. Right. And uh, depending on the answer, I probably would ask something, so what music are you listening to? Hmm. Did you ever do music? Did you ever make your own music what what do you like and why do you like that mm. and uh if it's something i do like or i have knowledge about i ask more questions about actual bands right because that is if somebody puts up something then they then they try to meander through well i don't know this and i don't know that or uh, it depends on the person. It could be the same thing with sports. After after the uncomfortable, go to sports or music, which should be an easier subject, but right. they react totally different after the first uncomfortable question. Hmm. And what you're trying to get there is character, right? Trying to understand uh, whether or not they represent themselves accurately. Is that is that the goal? That is one thing. Yeah. How nervous they get in mm. these questions, how they deal with something uncomfortable and confrontation. Right. When you go out and do sales or when you talk to anybody, it's always confrontational. Right. Not necessarily all the time, but at the beginning, yeah, you, you do a lot of small talk, which is inviting, but theoretically nobody needs you because everybody has somewhere a supplier or a solution for it. But if not, he wouldn't be in business. Right. right. Why would they need us? Uh, needs and allows you to give them well allows you to get us to give them a chance to understand why it would be of benefit yeah and that needs to go through a certain level of confrontation and do you have pretty high retention rates do you think you've got a pretty good hiring record in terms of getting the people you want and keeping them oh this is always twofold uh, i yeah. usually had to hire two people to find the person yeah yeah. So I don't know if that is a good retention record. The guy in Florida that I hired 2006 is still with us and is very well and very good. The sales guys here, the team that we have right now is actually pretty good. And that is a good retention rate on there. I think they're happy. But it took in between trials that yeah. you hire a dot and then you hire another dot right. and then finally got the right guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a trial and error process. Well, Frank, we, we're almost out of time, but there's a couple other questions uh, that I'd like to ask. The first one is kind of, you know, lots of speculation. Obviously, everyone's looking at this post-COVID world and, you know, what changes uh, might be taking place. How is it going to impact your business? Do you think that this is going to be a, a different workplace uh, in terms of, you know, where how Leher will be responding and, and working with others or, or pretty much business as usual once we're all able to take our off. Do we ever take the mask off and complete? <laughs> That's a good question. We may not be able to. <laughs> so we are deemed essential business, and that's the reason we were able to stay open, which is not just a business decision. I mean, I don't think right. we, we even barely made enough to, to cover the, the rent and the, 
and uh, employee salaries, but it is good for the people to have something to hold on to. Right. It might be a fear factor, but yes, we do extra cleaning out in the yards. There's plenty of room. Most of the mm-hmm. stuff is six foot long, so they stay apart from each other. Yep. We are finally we were able to got some masks somewhere at the beginning of April. Uh, we got more cleaning supply because a lot of people were just hoarding the stuff and That's right. nobody yeah. was able to get it. We do a different cleaning protocol and we have the people that are high at risk, elderly or sickly at home. That works well. Uh, what do you want to change? We'll, we'll change a bit, but people will need access. The refineries need to do their shutdowns. The coal boilers need to do their repairs and their shutdowns. We need mm-hmm. power. So that scaffold will be built, that access will be given, and uh, that won't change that much on our end. What will change is the interaction between people. How is somebody going to visit a customer? How is somebody to go and to deliver and and meet people with that material? All these things in detail. You know, it'll be a different world and uh, lots of new normals out there. Well, lastly, we, we always ask all our CEOs, Frank, what career and life advice you'd give to someone who is listening. Maybe they're 10, 15, 20 years behind you and in their working life. But, you know, perhaps they have ambitions to become, uh, you know, uh, a CEO themselves or running an organization or, or perhaps they don't. But, you know, they, they want to advance their career. What, what kind of advice would you give them to uh, maybe end up at the head of an organization like yours or, you know, a larger or maybe even go out on their own? What, what, what's kind of the, the secret sauce, so to speak? The first one would be one that I mentioned before, relax. It mm. does not need to happen right away. Use the time more wisely. The second yeah. one would be make yourself useful and anticipate what needs to be done. Keep your mm. eyes open and understand what needs to be done. Well, Frank Freach, CEO of Lahir uh, of North America, thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Uh, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.